Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thank you. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It's March 13th, 2019. We seem to have a good crowd uh, this morning, thankfully, and um, more will pop in. And they have even changed the clocks for us uh, after daylight savings time, which usually takes a little bit longer. A um, couple reminders. We will next week continue our CHAD Pediatric Pulmonary uh, Mini Fellowship Series with Dr. O'Sullivan on um, vocal cord disorders and other um, airway concerns. And um, for those who might want to take in a, a wonderful charity event this Saturday down at the SNHU Arena in Manchester, the Battle of the Badges, police versus fire, already ahead of last year's um, record-breaking um, proceeds. So, but today, Dr. Stephanie White continues her string of, of inviting and welcoming um, excellent speakers that she's invited and brought to us, and I'll let Dr. White uh, introduce Dr. Reed. Good morning, everyone. So um, it's so nice to see some faces from across our institution and hopefully some others are joining us online. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Joan Reed, who is the Dean of Diversity and Community Partnership at Harvard Medical School. So it was very hard to convince all of the amazing things about Dr. Reed, and so I'm going to tell you some of the reasons why she's so, she's so inspiring. So Dr. Reed earned her bachelor's degree from Brown University, her medical degree from Mount Sinai School of Medicine, and then completed a pediatric residency at Johns Hopkins. Returning to Boston, which she's from Massachusetts, she worked in public schools and juvenile prison clinics and was struck by the lack of services in the community. And so you'll notice the theme with Dr. Reed's journey is that she is the ever scholar and truly believes in um, lifelong learning. And so she went back to pursue a child psychiatry fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital, not really to become a therapist, but to serve her patients better. She went on to become the medical director of Mattapan Community Health Center, which I know some of our students are intimately involved in. So Dr. Reed is charged with fulfilling her passions to support diversity activities as they relate to faculty, trainees, students, and staff at Harvard. And in 1990, she founded the Minority Faculty Development Program. Since that time, when she joined at 1990, the minority faculty at Harvard was about 10% and has grown to over 25% of their faculty, including 700 underrepresented faculty members. And so in diversity and inclusion work and in academia, one of our struggles is how do we get more people here? And the way that Dr. Reed did this is by developing, creating, supporting more than 20 programs that specifically address pipeline issues that support and promote minority faculty within academia. She's also designed training programs for middle and high school teachers, developed science curricula for public schools, implemented research and exchange clerkships programs at Harvard, um, and the list goes on. And so it really shows she, she is about collaborating, she comes from a community background, and she sees that the value in advancing any of these issues really relies on the total rather than one person doing the work. 
Dr. Reed is a coveted colleague and a leader of numerous organizations. Um, her work is acknowledged on the local, regional, and national levels and amongst our highest um, medical organizations. She also holds an MPH and MS in Health Policy Management from Harvard School of Public Health and an MBA from Boston University. I'm not exactly sure how she fit those degrees into her <laughs> busy schedule, um, but she holds appointments of Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Professor of Society, Human Development and Health at the School of Public Health, and an assistant in the Health Policy um, Program at Mass General Hospital. So, Without further ado, as I could keep going on, I would like to introduce you to Dr. Reed. Thank you. Have that on it, probably like this. Perfect. Thank you very much. Good morning. Good morning. You know what? It, it's I, I didn't expect this, so I go places and I say good morning and I get this. Mm. <laughs> Unless I go down south, and then they know call and response, and they and then I come up here. And you got the call and response down. So this is, I feel very good here. So thank you very much. Thank you for that invitation. I have to start out by correcting one piece. So 25% of our faculty are not underrepresented minority. I would love that. But that's not the case. Um, and I'll get more into that a little bit um, later. But our programs have reached somewhere between 18 and 20,000 students being involved in the programs across my office. Um, I'm going to start out by saying I have no disclosures. Um, but I always make this offer. If any of you are independently wealthy, <laughs> I am more than happy to list you in the future. <laughs> uh, some of the learning objectives for today, framing the benefits of diversity, giving a little bit of data about the landscape, the workforce that we have in academic medicine, and then to talk a little bit about the experiences, experiences of those who might want to enter our fields, as well as those who are in our environment, our colleagues right now, and then to describe a little bit about Harvard's programs and what we've learned through our programs and our next steps. And I want to start with this historical context because I talked about why is this important and why is it important now. And this concept of minority, diversity, inclusion, our country has been struggling with forever since the start of our country. So if you think about this, you can think about this first Civil Rights Act of 1875. Most of us think of civil rights as 1964. Well, that's not the first time. The first Civil Rights Act was passed by our Congress in 1875, struck down by our Supreme Court, and then brought back later in the 1960s. There's Plessy v. Ferguson, uh, where separate but equal was upheld but it was largely based on a case out of Robert's case out of Boston um, that ruled that they did not need to integrate the schools in Boston. Um, at the same time, the legislature came back, and because of a child, the schools in Massachusetts became integrated in the early, mid-1800s. But because of the court ruling, it was used with Plessy B. Ferguson, but a child comes back again, or multiple children, when we think about Brown versus Board of Higher Education, which was another case about children and access that uh, tore down the separate but equal concept. And we build and live on this Brown versus education today. What I find interesting is as I look through part of the social media and some of the readings I have now, there are people who are talking about maybe we should reverse Brown versus Board of Education. So one of the things, and, and part of why this spiral is here, 
oftentimes we go forward and we think we've solved that issue or solved that problem, but it comes back around. So even as you think about Boston and this Roberts case and the integration of Boston public schools, any of you that know Massachusetts and you think about the late 60s and the 70s and Louise Day Hicks and the busing in Boston, that came back around again around this idea of equal access in our education. And today, if I look at Boston public schools, which are 85% minority, Boston is a majority minority city, if we look at the exam schools, if we look at the schools that are best resourced for the most students going to four-year colleges, they are predominantly white schools. If we think about Boston Latin School, all the district schools, some of them have over 90% minority students. So even though we've torn down separate but equal, unequal still exists. And a, a recent Globe report talked about part of this. But this issue that started as we talked about equal access and diversity around race, ethnicity, as you move forward, you start to see 1990, the American with Disabilities Act. We see the 1972 Title IX. And we keep slowly moving forward. These issues around access, these issues around equity and justice come back. So you have Greta B. Bollinger in 2003. We just finished with the Fisher case. There's a case that's still being adjudicated for Harvard around the admissions right now. And I can't help but believe this is going to come back to the Supreme Court again. So we just keep circling back around the same issues. But I want to start this, because I'm going to talk about diversity, I'm going to talk about inclusion, and I'm going to start by asking, what does diversity mean to you? And with the hope that all of you at least have heard the word, <laughs> even if you just heard it when I just said it, um, but what does it mean to you? So you're supposed to tell me what it means to you now. <laughs> See, the good part about being a pediatrician you know, like in pediatrics, I got to do this part. So you know in pediatrics, it's conversations I used to have with my daughter. And I'd have whole conversations in the car. So you did it in the car because she'd be sitting over here and I didn't, didn't have to look at me and she would answer questions. Okay. Um, but then you got to those points where you realized you just had to almost get in their face and say, I'm here, respond. <laughs> so oftentimes when I ask a group like this a question, it's like nobody wants the wrong answer. Nobody wants to, you know, everybody's sort of uncertain. So I will get in your face. You're in my face, though. So I am, I am. Um, I think my name is Camila. I'm a medical student here. Um, perhaps diversity means a group of people from uh, different backgrounds coming together and sharing their experiences or their beliefs, cultures. <laughs> beliefs, cultures, different backgrounds, groups of people, others? I like to think of it as like not everything looks the way that you see it at home. So other people have different things that they experience, different religions, different cultures, different ways they see the world. Mm -hmm. So maybe not like you see it at home, even though your home may be diverse. Okay. I've thought about this a lot, and I think about it in terms of biological evolution. Diversity gives... Uh, an organism a greater opportunity to survive in times of stress. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, I'm aware that we try to blur the lines of diversity 
by saying there is no race, there is no color, we're all the same. Mm -hmm. So it's confusing to me mm -hmm. as an old mm -hmm. fogey trying to figure this out. <laughs> one of the things I'd say about race is it's a social construct. It is not a biological construct. It is a social construct. So I have to tell you, I was doing grand rounds. I won't tell you the institution. This is several years ago. And you talk about old fogey. I'm an old fogey. And somebody that might call themselves an old fogey from the audience said, you know, this language and what you're talking about is confusing. And now you're talking about multiple races. You have just confused the heck out of me. And my response was, people who look like me always knew that there were multiple races. So if I look at my family history, there's white and there's Native American, there's black. I have no problem with this concept. It's, I just didn't buy into the full social construct that was put out there. And if we look at someone like me, depending on when I was born, I would be called something different which means it's not biologic. I'm a mulatto here, I'm a this there, I'm a all these other kinds of things. Those are social constructs, but it can be very confusing. And as you might think of it in some ways as ways of containing and controlling, which is part of how these race classifications came into being. Anybody over here have any thoughts about what diversity means to you? Uh, inclusion. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> to me, inclusion means not only the backgrounds of the people, but working in a place where not only it's safe, but it's productive to express different points of view, and then they work synergistically together and bring everything. So that inclusion is, is, is a positive thing. And this, this sense of almost moving towards belonging, because people now also talk about belonging with inclusion. Others, what does inclusion mean to you? You have this diversity task force that's going on here. There's all sorts of conversations about part of this in the media. What does inclusion mean to you? Recognizing that points of view other than your own are valid. Okay. All right. And, and I have to say there's not a right or wrong answer to this. Why are they important to you? But I'm also going to ask you, particularly at this important time where you have a task force, where this is part of your grand rounds, why should diversity or inclusion be important or is it important to your organization, to your department? to your institution or department? A multitude of ideas enrich the organization. And you can get thoughts from lots of different mm -hmm. perspectives. Others. Or should it not be important? You can say that to me. You can push back. I don't mind. It also allows us to be welcoming to the whole community and for the whole community to see us as somewhere they belong. Mm -hmm. So you can think about your patients, you can think about their families, you can think about the community at large, a feeling like this is a part, they are a part, they're welcomed in the door. Others? Not only does it get everyone more engaged in the course, it improves the bottom line. <laughs> so better ideas coming together from different ways, the bottom line, productivity, outcomes. Mm -hmm. I think it's analogous to what the gentleman over here said about uh, biologically black diversity is good. It's really good. Okay, all right. So I'm going to talk about why I think it's important and how I frame this. And part of this you've heard here, and I'm going to talk about realizing our values, our values in this medical, this healthcare space, addressing complex issues and ensuring viability. And for me, that is this concept of is diversity an end? 
Is it a means to an end, or is it a combination of both? So let me give you an example of this. Uh, while I was in my MBA program, they have this thing that you do about values, and you sort of rate your, these values cards of what's important to you. One of the cards is about diversity. And you have come up with your 10 top values. And for me, who's been leading diversity efforts at Harvard Medical School for more than 25 years, diversity was not in my top 10. I was surprised, and everybody around me was surprised. Okay? What was in my top 10 was about equity and justice. So I want equity and justice, and I thought of diversity as a means towards equity and justice. So for me, part of it was a reflection of what I was aiming towards in terms of equity and justice. But it's to start to think about, when you think about diversity, is diversity, have you achieved diversity because when you put the picture up, you see different colors, a coat of many colors sort of thing? Or have you achieved diversity when you get those different perspectives and understandings and those are brought to bear? So is it just about a picture or is it something more to it than that? And for me, there's also this concept I have of diversity inclusion. So if we look over the history and the time, there was a time where we talked about we wanted more blacks, early 70s, late 70s, double AMC. And then they, want, they said, oh my gosh, there's Hispanics too. So we want more blacks and we want more Hispanics. Okay. And large parts of what they talked about that was we need more blacks, Hispanics, because we have an increasingly diverse population and we need them to serve that population. Very Flexnerian. So if you look at the Flexner report from 1910, it talks about this need for black doctors. But we need black doctors to serve black patients, black communities, so that their diseases do not come to us. Okay? And also within this was this concept that we need them to be trained not to be leaders, not to be scientists, not to be researchers. We need them not to be surgeons. We need them to just be able to take care of those patients in the community. So you start to see some of the discrepancies in terms of fields, about where people are thought to be going, the societal, the context coming to bear. When Carnegie and others put out so much money across our academic medical centers, um, which weren't even called academic medical centers there, and they built out these big, huge research platforms and other things, the historically black schools, most of which closed with the Flexner Report, did not receive that same money. So if you look at those institutions, some institutions have 100 years of getting funding, and some never got that initial funding and are supposed to keep, compete. So understanding our history, understanding our context is important. But as we move forward with all of this, I've been struck by the fact that we are, it feels like less than a snail's pace. And for me, it's this concept of if what you're aiming for is diversity, now diversity and inclusion, diversity and inclusion and belonging, diversity and inclusion and equity. And if I live long enough, there'll be another term thrown in there. All right? Can't happen unless you have diversity and inclusion, unless it becomes embedded in the organization. Unless you have a diversity lens as you're developing your policies, practices, and programs. So all too often in our organizations, we have here's our mission, and here's how we deploy our mission, our teaching, our research and service, and then we have a diversity office. It's not part of that mission and our thinking about how do we achieve our mission. It's separate. And for me, it needs to be brought into the fabric of the organization if we're going to achieve diversity and inclusion. 
So this realizing our values, you might think about the Charter of Medical Professionalism, where they talk about principles, and they talk about this principle of social justice, or the IOM report about crossing the quality chasm, where they talk about equity. In a legal system, they talk about distributive justice, and this concept of fairness and justice and equal access to outcomes. For us in medicine, we might think about equal access to our population, to our clinics, to our hospitals, to our providers. We might think about um, our outcomes that we have and the disparities that we, we exist and how those could be minimized. So I'm going to share briefly part of Harvard's evolution. So uh, under our prior dean, two deans ago, um, Dean Martin, we added diverse to our mission statement. Most recently, under George Daly, we changed it to diverse and inclusive community. Now, why this is important in the mission statement, I've been doing this work, as I said, for more than 25 years, and people would say, you know, Joan, you're doing God's work. And I'm like thinking, that's good, because the opposite is not good. <laughs> All right? But I'm saying, but I'm also doing the work of the medical school, and I'm also doing the work for our profession. This is not just advancing diversity for what you put in this box of minorities. When it becomes part of the mission statement, the work that I do is advancing the mission of the organization. It frames it very differently. So if you look at the Sullivan Commission report, if you look at one of the IOM reports, they talk about for organizations to start to think about how do you embed this in mission, if it's a value that you think is important, so that everybody is thinking about it. Harvard also, under Jeff Flyer, prior immediately past dean, came up with a value statement. And here you see diversity and respect is one of our, our major, or two of our major values for the school. But if you look within that, this unique perspective is part of what you talked about, and experiences and potential to contribute. And to me, this potential to contribute is critically important. Because all too often, we say, I'm going to give you a chance, but could you get a Nobel Prize first? <laughs> and then I know you're good enough to come through the door. And this is about potential. All right. I'll give an example that you, as is, is, is sort of in the pediatric world, will get. When my daughter, when I was um, looking at middle schools for her, and she'd gone, to, she'd gone to Boston Public School for elementary school, middle schools for her, and I was looking at these private schools. And so I go to this one private school, um, and they find out I'm at Harvard, and they find out what I do. So the head of the science department came to speak to me. Tells you about the school. How many of your middle schools have a head of science? <laughs> so I'm sitting there talking to the head of science, and there's a knock on the door, and it's one of their students. And so I want to see the interaction. I said, you know, take the student's question. I want to see what happens there. And the student had a question because he was having some difficulty with the electron microscope. <laughs> okay? Okay? I leave there, and we do a lot of work with teachers and teacher professional development and curriculum development for public schools. And I go back to Harvard, and it's time for the science fair. And I have these science teachers from across multiple schools. And I ask them what they had been given for supplies for the science fair for their students. They had been given boxes of markers. Electron microscope, boxes of markers. 
Are the students in that public school less able? Do they have less potential? Do they have less opportunity? Do they have less access to resources? And how do we start to take that into consideration? Seeking diversity, promoting equity and social justice as the bedrock for why we're doing this. And here, this is, when you think about valuing, it's valuing everything that comes to the table. So I love that comment about the, the diversity about, it's not just what we have at home, but outside. But there's diversity in home. And so part of what I'm going to say is all of us in this room represent diversity. We come from different backgrounds. We make assumptions. But, you know, how many of you are first generation? How many of you come from a background where you might have had free lunch? or money was tight? How many of you maybe yourselves have had members of your family or LGBT or disabled or any of these other kinds of things? All of this is part of diversity. And it's how do we bring our total selves to the work that we do? How do our organizations start to understand that when we cannot bring our total selves, they miss out? So the example I would use for this is um, I'm oftentimes, I come into a space and I'll say, well, Joan is here. And because she's a woman, she knows all women's issues. <laughs> Anything about women, anywhere in the world, just ask me, because I'm a woman. But because I'm black, I know all minorities. Asian, Latino, doesn't matter. I know everything because I'm a minority. And then, so you, you get past that and sort of say, really? <laughs> And then they say, well, that's why she's here. That's what she knows. And you heard part of my background. And I'm thinking, maybe I know something else. <laughs> okay? Maybe I have something else that I could contribute. The organization misses out on what else I can contribute. And I feel less respected, less valued. Do I feel as committed to the organization? Do I want to stay at the organization? So what happens in those situations is the organization misses out and I miss out. So oftentimes when I think about diversity, it's a person who says, Joan, uh, we need more black pediatricians in Roxbury because there's a large black population and Harvard wants to serve Roxbury. My being at Harvard means how do I help Harvard better serve Roxbury? The onus is not on me to fix Roxbury. The onus is on Harvard and our teaching hospitals and our faculty or how we can collectively collaborate and work with community to improve the health of our patients within Roxbury. It's not Jones' issue. It's our organization's issue. And it's how my presence and what I can bring can help move the organization. We now have a diversity statement. It says we have to understand our history this needs to be about social justice. We need to challenge discrimination, disparities, and inequities. It acknowledges that they exist. This idea that diversity, the but not limited to, is important to me. There's no way I could characterize everybody and everything. A safe environment. These are some of the terms that you talked about. A place where you can engage in safe dialogue and question, where you feel valued and supported where there's a respect for differences in culture and language and life experiences, where we can deal with bias, both implicit and explicit, where we think about our recruitment, our admissions, our hiring, our policies and practices, 
where we engage with community pipeline issues and disparities, and we monitor what we do. So for me, in realizing these values, it's how do you move from this picture where we can talk about inclusion as having somebody get into the room. And you take a nice picture. Think about your brochures, because partly they start in the diversity space. They start with a space of, in your pictures, in your brochure, or online, are there any people of color? Um, I also go to, are these stock photos, or do they represent anybody that's actually in your environment, which is a different issue. Um, two, thinking about, do I have a seat at the table? But all too often, you have a seat at the table, and your voice is not heard. So how do you move to a space so that you have a seat at the table? Your voice is heard, you're engaged in the dialogue, and you influence the outcomes. Complex issues, health disparities, um, the, the social determinants of health, very complex issues that we're dealing with. And we need these diverse perspectives, people asking different questions, using different heuristics, coming at it from multiple approaches. So if we start to think about what we all bring, moving from this sort of multidisciplinary additive to interdisciplinary, the kinds of things that we talk about in our research and in our spaces. We bring our nurses together, we bring our doctors together, we bring our therapists together, to transdisciplinary. And to me, this is where you really get the innovation. This is when you start to break down those barriers. And you start to think very differently because you're learning from one another and you enter a new space. This viability in the demographics, when I started this work, people would talk about, Joan, Joan, now I hear you, I hear you, I hear you, and you're talking about a demographic shift, but it's so far away. We don't really need to worry about it. For those of us in the pediatric world, we know it is already occurring. So if you think about this space, if we think about who is going to our elementary school, graduating from high school, who are the people who go to college, the people who can go to medical school or nursing school, graduate school, who will become the future faculty, who will become the future people in this room, increasingly diverse. In those states and places, it sort of said, it really doesn't involve us. So I was telling them last night at dinner, more than 20 years ago, it was a, a commencement at, at University of New Hampshire, and I spoke at the commencement, I spoke about diversity, and I looked out at the audience that was looking at me like, what is she talking about? Yeah. Okay, this has nothing to do with us, okay? Think about where this state is today, and the issues and the crisis of not of a workforce, and having a workforce. And can they deal with that if they don't deal with the demographic shifts, and the younger people who can become part of that workforce? So something moving from a time and a place where people were saying, yeah, yeah, it was a nice talk, has nothing to do with New Hampshire, to a place of, oh my goodness, how do we entice people to come to our state? How do we get them to think about us as a place to work? Some of the data in terms of numbers, this is uh, minority, underrepresented minority, black, Hispanic, Native American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, in our U.S. medical schools, this is roughly 8% if you use multiple non-Hispanic in there. Um, again, this is a social construct. This was at about 5% after Greta B. Bollinger, and they changed definitions, it went to 8%. It's not that the numbers went up extensively. We changed definitions. 
If we look at our faculty, our faculty at medical schools, I want to bring up this concept of intersectionality, and it's not just about race, ethnicity, but it's also about gender. And here you see black, um, Hispanic, Asian, other females who are full professors in U.S. medical schools. So my take home from part of this, today there are roughly 170,000 faculty in all of our U.S. medical schools. There are 200, roughly 200, black female full professors out of 170,000. Okay? You have to bring intersectionality into this. And what does that mean? And what are the messages that we're sending? I had held a dinner last week for 18 people, and there were four black female full professors there. We had 2% of the black female professors <laughs> in the country at a dinner. Now, does that make any kind of sense in these days and times? If we look at our department chairs, um, Asian underrepresented minority, and the part that's important to me in this is Asians are not underrepresented in science. They are underrepresented in leadership. So I want you to think across medical school deans, department chairs, division chiefs here, this department, other departments, other places where you have trained. Asians in leadership are underrepresented. And this translates, and this includes Howard and Morehouse and University of Puerto Rico, to less than 30 Asian female department chairs. This is under 20 black female department chairs and about 23, 24 Hispanic. This includes the predominantly minority schools. If you look at the level of dean and women as deans, it's roughly 15% now are, are, are female. About 18% of our vice deans, 50% of our assistant deans. So some movement, but inadequate. I thought I'd throw this in because this is just something you might have seen it going around GDI. Just saying, who are there? So that right now, we have seven Hispanic deans in U.S. medical schools. There's two Asians. And we have 12 black deans in U.S. medical schools. So why is this important? Um, I'm going to come to some slides to tell you why I think it's important, and particularly for our pediatric population. This is Harvard, just giving you some data. There's about 11,500 faculty at Harvard. The vast majority of them are clinical faculty. You can see the increase in numbers over time um, from our, our part-time and our full-time faculty at the medical school. Here you see the increases in underrepresented minority and Asian Pacific Islander. Today there's 700 um, black, Hispanic, Native American faculty at Harvard Medical School. Low in percentages, less than the national percentage, the average, but the largest absolute number of uh, minority faculty or in faculty in a medical school. And you see the trend for women with increasing in terms of representation at the senior levels, at the level of professor, but still not where we need to be. So a definite issue. So what are some of the barriers? There's individual barriers. I've alluded to some of that in terms of preparation, opportunity, resources. There's these societal barriers, be they coming from the Supreme Court or our legislation or what you read and what's going on politically in the media, DACA, all these other kinds of things that have an impact. And then there's our organization, the culture, policies, practices within our organization. But I want you to look and think about your children, children in your practice. What do they see? What do they hear? What is the possibility? Do they see themselves 
as possibly becoming part of our profession. So this is Google. I did a Google search. You put in the term images and hit. And this is what came up for smart person. What do you see? Oh. <laughs> Leave that alone. What else do you see? What? All right, smart person. Doctor, what do you see? Pediatrician, what do you see? Uh, a lot of women? All women? Think about the percentage of women in pediatrics. A lot of men. Think about it. If you are a person of color, you might be a physician. You can't even be a patient in this one. <laughs> okay. <coughs> Professor, what do you say? All right. Assistant professor. All right. So it's professional. You might have read some of the stuff in the news. Uh, it's been in the New York Times, et cetera, lately around professional hair. What do you see? This is professional hairstyles. What does a professional hairstyle look like? Okay. All right. All right. Unprofessional. Okay. Once you think about the messages our children see. And what you see in the Google research is, yes, it's, it's related to the algorithms that they use, but it's also reflective of what comes out of the articles and the things that they're pulling from across the board. So what does this tell us about who's advantaged and same and who belongs and who's dominant and who's subordinate and disadvantaged and disconnected, who's in and who's out? Think about your organization. What are some of those barriers to feeling included, to belonging, and to diversity? Stereotype and stereotype threat. Tokenism. Lack of validation. Isolation and exclusion. Being hyper-visible hyper and invisible at the same time. Which you might think is hard to do, but if you're black, you can, really, you can master this very quickly. Um, microaggressions and bias. So if you start to think about, as all of us, or many of us are thinking about, well, I want to bring in more diversity, what does it mean to be the pioneer, that first person, or one of those first people, being more competent than other people? Okay? I was raised with a family that said, it will never be adequate for you to be as good as you must be better than as a black woman in this country. <laughs> You have to be able to fit into the organization. And I have to make other people feel comfortable with my difference. I have to make them feel comfortable when they come over and touch my hair in my space. Okay? Or question my dress or anything else. It's my job for them not to feel uncomfortable about questioning me. I have to represent my identity group. So part of the burden I have is if I mess up, it's not Joan messed up, it's blacks messed up, or women messed up. It's how it gets interpreted. Preconceptions about what members of the identity group have, or why they got there, or how they got there. It's the people who ask me, well, you got this position because you're black. And I'm thinking, no, I got this position because I'm qualified. That's why I'm here.
um, serving on multiple, multiple committees and task forces. And we put this burden oftentimes on those individuals who are in the mar margins as we try to bring diversity to our organizations, not recognizing that we're asking them to serve all these roles that help our organization and at the same time expecting them to do what everybody else is doing at the same time. Okay. And how do we start to bring that together? One of my assistants a few years ago added them up, and I was on 33 committees at Harvard. Okay, um, Being involved in recruiting and outreach. And I want to say here, maybe that's not what I'm into. Maybe that's not what I'm good at. So there should not be an assumption that that's what I'm going to do. And we all own that responsibility. So a little bit about my office. The first thing I'm going to start out with is we talk about a pipeline. I am fundamentally opposed to the term pipeline and leaky pipeline. I use it because that's what people use and understand. So this is what I think of. I'll talk about this. a leaky pipeline and we're losing these kids. I think of a leaky pipeline, I am not mechanical, as I parked my car someplace, and when I drive off, there's some gunk on the ground. <laughs> okay, leaky pipeline. That is not people. That is not people. When I think of people, there are multiple paths for them to move forward. And we need to build systems where there's multiple ways to enter, exit, and re-enter. And understand that everyone's journey is not the same. So when it's a leaky pipeline, I say to this high school student, you didn't take calculus in high school. How could you possibly do this when you get to college? Which is part of what I hear. And I'm thinking, why can't they take it in college? And why can't we help them take it in college? I think of this as how many of you are in a position today that when you graduate from high school, you knew that this is what you'd be doing? Okay, one person. I surely didn't know I'd be doing this. How many of you started down this road and you might have changed your major? You might have changed your school? You might have changed your research interest or what you wanted to do and you went in different directions. That's not a leaky pipeline. You changed. You changed. You are not a failure because you changed. So I have a problem with pipeline. I think about careers as journeys going from one place to another. There's lots of ways to get there. I might stop along the way. I might stop and take off a few years to raise my children and to get back on. There is not a one-size-fits-all in one direction. These concepts, these C's, continuity of efforts, all too often we plug kids into a program and we'll say this is a great program for these middle schoolers because um, we're turning them into doctors. Well, maybe they need something to help them in high school or college or multiple points for connections along that academic path. Um, this consistency of effort. All too often our organizations start diversity efforts. If I think about when I started this years ago and five years into it, people came and said, you know, Joan, you've been running this program for five years and there's still a diversity problem at Harvard. <laughs> and I say, you had a few hundred years to create this problem. <laughs> right? This is consistency of effort over time. It's collaboration. Can we get kids to think about STEM and science and health careers if we're not working with our schools, if we're not working with our community organizations. It's being creative. If we say we're searching for diversity and we keep doing things in the same way that we've always done them 
and we don't get diversity. Why do we keep doing the same thing in the same way? It's about how we communicate. So this one I like. So um, I'm a 501c3 I started, um, and it involved working with Mass Medical Society. They were one of the founders with me. Um, and so I'm there, and Mass Medical produces New England Journal of Medicine. So I'm there at the meeting, um, and they say, Joan, we really need to let kids in the community know that we are interested in diversity in medicine. Can you write an article for the New England Journal of Medicine that speaks to this? <laughs> what is the fundamental problem with this? Okay, all right. How many of your patients read the New England Journal of Medicine? Okay, so how do you communicate? And how do you communicate with all this social media, these other things? We have to be able to communicate with kids where they are today. It's a consideration that there are multiple forms of diversity. There's not just one, and there's intersectionality and commitment. Not just people from the bottom up. Oftentimes in organizations, it's the most junior people, the most vulnerable people who are leading these efforts. It's got to come from the top, the bottom, and the middle. To achieve diversity, all of us must be engaged in this. So for some examples, we have curriculum development for, for schools, professional development. We have out-of-school program during the academic year during the summer, part of Boston Public Schools. Students come to Harvard Medical School for AP Biology because the teachers either didn't know the labs, didn't have the resources, so they actually come to Harvard Medical School to do those labs that are most difficult. It's not that the schools didn't have AP Biology. The kids never completed all the labs. So think about it. You're the student. You're taking AP Biology. You think you're doing great. I don't know what the numbers are. Now, but say there's 12 labs, but you only do seven of them in your school. When you take the exam, will you ever pass the exam? All right. And so for us, is, it was going to the teachers and say, what are the most difficult labs for you to teach? So for part of it, we worked with the college board to train the teachers. For part of it, we got funding to give supplies to the schools. And for part of it, they come to the school. And those students now get tutoring and other kinds of things and test prep for them to take the exam. <laughs> There's a visiting clerkship program where students come in during third and fourth year medical school and do the exchange clerkships that all of our medical schools share. You can see that, that as of 2000. 17, there have been 1,400 students roughly, multiple faculty advisors across multiple disciplines. In a year, 10 to 15% matched to Harvard. We're now headed towards 60 that have actually ended up on faculty over time. Multiple points for entry, exit, re-entry. There's Dean's postdoctoral fellowships. We're looking at our PhDs. This is not just about MDs. There's faculty fellowships. There's our Commonwealth Fund Fellowship, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it. Our faculty fellowships, we buy out part of individuals' times so they can do scholarly work. We've done four cohorts. We're actually in our fifth cohort now. You can see in terms of retention, 79% being retained. 68.5% at that time promoted, even more for promoted. We now have two that are full professors that came through this. You can design programs that can give the resources and support so people can do the work so they can get advanced. The Commonwealth Fund Fellowship is around developing and preparing leaders who will impact minority vulnerable populations um, and has been around for more than 20 years. In terms of some of the outcomes, 100% of state committed to minority and vulnerable populations. The majority are faculty 
and our medical schools, our schools are public health. I have three who are heads of foundations, four have been policy advisors to senators, they've been heads of federal organizations, state organizations. You can train people for leadership and provide opportunities. This Better Together, I mentioned the Biomedical Science Careers Program that I started with New England Board of Higher Education and the Massachusetts Medical Society, spun out of Harvard as a separate 501c3. Um, this organization by itself has had more than 14,000 students from across the country participate. Dartmouth undergrads participate. Some of your medical students participate in it. It's something that you could participate as faculty advisors. It's a real simple thing. It's free for the kids who come. Um, at our last conference, we had 200 and I think it was 40 advisors. They come from all over the country, and some come back. They come from out of the country, and they fly back just to be advisors for this. 45 of the advisors had been students who came through this, who are now doctors and heads of companies and PhDs and other kinds of things. So the students come back and serve as advisors in this. This New England Science Symposium, our next one is going to be on April 6th, that brings students who are engaged in research together to present their research. So college through the postdoctoral level. What I find fascinating here is I cross institutions, they'll say there are no minority postdocs, no minority grad students. If you look here, there are. They're in Boston. These are things where you could come and judge. You could send your students. The power of being in a room where there's three, four, five hundred students at one time who are engaged in research and seeing each other and decreasing that isolation. So some of the lessons learned, this articulation of programs. And so for me, they don't have to stay in Harvard programs. We put out directories and I'll send them to other programs and let them know about other opportunities. This multiple points for entry, exit, and re-entry being really flexible in programming, particularly if you're partnering with community. I remember putting in for a grant with a community organization that was focused on girls. By the time the grant came in, the community organization had changed its focus. And like you're scratching your head and saying, now how do I do this? Yeah. All right. What was interesting in part of that was um, I went back to the funder and said, I'm interested in, in Boston. Um, there's this real issue of moving from middle school to high school and a big drop off where kids dropping out of school at that stage. Um, and we are all aware of this real crisis that we have in terms of our minority boys in school. So I went back to the funder and said, I'd like to start, change it to have two programs in the summer. This is a summer camp, uh, STEM. Um, one that could be co-ed, girls and boys, and one an all-boys session. And I did something you're not supposed to do because the funder said you cannot find minority boys that would do STEM summer session. So no, you can't do that. So I did it anyway. Yeah. You're not supposed to do that. But we had boys' sessions. And it was powerful because the boys saw each other. They were not odd. They did things together. And we got, we got um, male faculty and residents and others to come and meet with them so that they had those individuals as roles and possibilities. They did not need for me to see another black woman. What they needed to see was that I could be a black male and still be cool and still do science and still move ahead. We need to cross disciplinary boundaries. BSCP, I showed you, has students as young as high school all the way up in terms of our programming. And, and Woody Myers, a good friend of mine, talked about them as pluripotential stem cells. <laughs> you have no idea what direction they're going in. right? But how do you present it to them in a way that they can 
go down a path that's best for them. Think about systems and how we connect across systems and career development and track, monitor, and evaluate. One of my, my pet peeves in diversity efforts is we oftentimes shoot from our hip. We do what we think is right or what is good or what our gut tells us will work or what we saw someplace else. That is not how we do anything else in the academy. That is not how we do medicine. We talk about evidence base. We talk about where are the data. And then when we turn to diversity, we no longer talk about evidence base and data. And so we need to know what works and what doesn't work and why it works and why it doesn't work. And we need to allocate our resources in efficient and effective ways. So there's an arm of my office that does part of this. It's a research and evaluation arm of my office. Looks at social network networks and using new kinds of technology to help us better understand the experiences of individuals in our system, our system of Harvard Medical School and our affiliated hospitals. We have research underway now that's actually looking at transitions. How do people transition from medical student to resident to faculty? And what are the barriers? What are the facilitators across that? How are resources allocated? And what's the impact of those resources? How do we evaluate our programs? And how do we train people in evaluation so that they can do it better? And understanding the context is critically important. If, you, if you're thinking about programming, will the programming you put in place for surgery be the same program you put in place for pediatrics? And it may or may not be. The culture, the climate, the expectations may be different. And we need to take that into consideration. So moving forward, where are we now at Harvard? We have LCME, we have a site visit at the end of this month. Everybody at Harvard goes to bed at night going, LCME, LCME, okay. Harvard University in the past few years had a, a, a task force on inclusion and belonging. I was one of the medical school representatives on that and has now come out with a large report with goals and tools for the entire university and is expecting each school across Harvard to come up with its own diversity strategic plan. There's a task force that I've been sharing that will come to the end this fall around diversity and inclusion. It's taken input from across the entire community. Part of why you saw that diversity statement reflecting so much of what you said here is that diversity statement was developed with input, huge input from across our whole community. Um, there is now a Harvard Medical School diversity and inclusion policy passed by the faculty council setting expectations across the school. Harvard Medical School has developed a strategic plan. Diversity is a, an inclusion or cross-cutting goals and expected in all areas across the medical school. And now, ACGME has diversity expectations. Do we know what that's going to mean? No. Do we know if they're going to enforce it? No. My hope is that we'll get some teeth behind it. But LCME has had diversity for a while, and schools are paying attention to it. Residency programs have had the luxury of ignoring this. And now ACGME is saying you can no longer ignore issues around diversity. So what will that mean for you? What will that mean for your residency and training program? So why now? Martin Luther King. One of the great liabilities of history is that all too many people fail to remain awake through great periods of social change. Every society has its protectors of status quo and its fraternities of the indifferent who are notorious for sleeping through revolutions. 
Today, our very survival depends on our ability to stay awake, to adjust to new ideas, to remain vigilant, and to face the challenge of change. This march for social justice, towards equity, towards inclusion, continues. It is all around us today. Why diversity now is because it continues to matter. So I think our challenge is to be informed by our values. Our values as professionals, our values as members of organization. To be guided by a vision, a vision of change. A vision where there is social justice. A vision where people can be included. Secured by vigilance and not sitting back and saying, we've arrived. For me, it was my walking into meetings at Harvard after Obama had been elected and people saying to me, there's no more race problem in America. <laughs> okay. Being vigilant. Maintained by voice. It is not adequate to think this is important. We must find our voice. We must speak up. I was doing a, a visiting professorship at a school and, and, and at the end of a a session, somebody said, I wish you had been yes here yesterday, whatever the session was or whatever they were in, somebody said something really egregious and offensive, and if you had been here, you could have spoken up. And my thoughts were, if it was egregious and offensive, you do not need me. You need to speak up in this space. And leadership needs to give the space for those voices to be heard, to be acknowledged, and there be to be no retribution. And strengthened by our victories. They don't all have to be great, but celebrate them when they are here as we continue to move forward. Thank you. Examples. One is to recognize that everybody doesn't share the background of you. I mean, they just don't. So uh, um, I'm way too busy now, but what I used to do with my high school students in my program when I realized I'd taken a group of our high school students, I'd gone to some reception and, and bought a table, and so I said, I'll just take the high school kids with me. And I sat at that table in this fancy hotel and watched them eat and just said, Oh my God. <laughs> my mother and grandmother would have had a uh, Fit. I mean, I could just see them snatching from behind and saying, you come with me. And realize, when I asked the kids, over 50% of them had never eaten in a restaurant, a real restaurant, had never ordered from a real menu, had never had anybody serve them. So for my, those high school kids, I used to take them to a restaurant with just me, 
where they could do things wrong and we could talk about it and it would be safe. Think about it. If you've never been exposed to something and all of a sudden you're in this environment with everybody else that knows the rule. Think about yourself when you look at four forks and you're sitting there going, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do with all of these forks. And she says, I just won't eat. <laughs> okay. All right. There's no reason. That's, that's, that wasn't born in you to know how to do that. So how can you create safe spaces for it? At BSCP, we do something as simple as we give all of the kids, kids their own business cards. Okay. Sounds like why. What happens with the kids, all of us use business cards and other kinds of things as vehicles for introduction to make it easier for ourselves. All right. Kids have nothing. They're coming into this space in this big fancy hotel with all of these big name people and do they belong or don't belong. So if you watch, and I have been doing this for more than 20 years, the kids will start and they'll walk over because we told them to hand them out and they'll go. <laughs> and you will say, Hello, my name is Dr. White. It's such a pleasure to meet you. You watch those same kids by the end of the meeting, they're going, my name is XYZ, and it's a pleasure to meet you. You have given them a tool. You have shown them how to use it. Something as simple as that. What the kids talk to me about is they have name tags on them, that when they speak on the panel, they have a nameplate that they have been welcomed into an environment and say, you belong here. But even just being there. So my board of directors at one point had talked to me about, you could do this cheaper, you could do this another place. And so I held a retreat with my board. And my board has CEOs from major international and other firms. Um, and I brought some of the kids in to speak. And one of the, the kids, who's now an MD-PhD, um, talked about, because he had been an EMT driver at the time, and he talked about coming to his first conference and saying, I came into a building that I thought I was not supposed to go in. It was for the other people. And then I step in here and I belong. There's somebody who welcomes me, who gives me a name badge, who shows me what to do. Um, so I think we can be cognizant of this and start to do things. One of the things we're doing now is pulling together some of our medical students who are first generation. So we're creating some videos, some other kinds of things, and supports for them to come together. We have a meeting coming up because, one, they're asking for it. But two, they think they're the only first generation. Are there any people here who are first in your families, first generation college, medical school, nursing, anything like that? All right. Look around at all the hands that went up. Kids think that they are the only first generations. They don't think, they don't think anybody else had the same kind of struggle. So how do you start to, to let them know that it's okay to be first generation and you can succeed? So I think it's being very cognizant, very deliberate, and doing things in a way that's respectful, that doesn't say everybody's going to know the rules. So I might explain the rules as I do it for everyone. Yeah. And that's, that's hard, part of how we approach that. People are starting to move on to their I see. I see. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.